Before we get started, I want to let you know that I'll be posting some of the pictures of the people, messages, and attacks from this episode on my Instagram for you to see. You can follow me at shell underscore pod to take a look. By now, if you've been following along, we've covered small groups of hackers, individual hackers, and last week, we talked about what can happen when a hacking group has the backing of an entire government at their disposal. It might seem like a pretty scary idea, but it's actually a relatively common occurrence. See, cyber espionage is effectively a Cold War replacement due to the nature of how stealthy it can be. It can be non-violent, disruptive, and can require little to no boots on the ground activity. Not only that, but there are ways smaller countries can turn it into a profit source as well. That's exactly what's being done with North Korea and the Lazarus Group. Last week, we dug into their hack on Sony, which was largely an attack on the company itself, but the Lazarus Group has had its hands in all kinds of cookie jars, so to speak. So today, we're going to dive into some of the crazier stuff they've done, and how you've probably already heard of them and might not realize it. I'm John Cordes, and today, I'd like to invite you to come with me while I explain what the shell is going on with the Lazarus Group. After careful investigation, the United States is publicly attributing the massive WannaCry cyber attack to North Korea. Sony Pictures Entertainment is reeling from what may be the biggest and most devastating computer hacking in Hollywood's history. We have unsealed criminal charges against a North Korean computer programmer for participating in a conspiracy that conducted sophisticated cyber attacks around the world on behalf of the North Korean government. Before we go into the Lazarus Group itself, I want to give a little bit of a background. The Lazarus Group is what's called an Advanced Persistent Threat, or an APT for short. The US government technically defines an APT as an adversary with sophisticated levels of expertise and significant resources. They go on to say that they don't typically go for one-off hacks, they'll prefer to take a long-term approach. Some of the identifying ways they characterize them are that they establish a foothold in the network and will pivot when they can, trying to take any information they can get along the way. Not much different from a regular hacker, but sometimes they'll aim to impede critical aspects of a program, company, or even a mission if they can get away with it. Sometimes they'll just sit and wait. They'll make sure that at the precise time and situation they want, an attack is launched in their favor in a way the government again defines as with determination to maintain the level of interaction to execute objectives and with a capability to adapt to the defender's efforts to resist. Alright, that was a bit of a mouthful, but let's just say that basically, there are groups of hackers with advanced tools and tactics, like far above that guy you know on TikTok who claims he can hack anything. They'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on the dark web to buy exploits and use them before anyone else even knows they exist. There's an entire market for this that they make up a good chunk of. Because of these resources at their disposals, APTs can use whatever attack vectors they need to accomplish their mission. They'll have specialists for whatever tactic they need, and maybe even spies and organizations to help get moving. It takes a lot to get the people, the systems, and the techniques to do it right, but when they do it, it's incredibly intimidating and incredibly scary. So we do know North Korea has an APT because we talked about it last episode. But why did North Korea start resorting to cyber attacks? Well, it comes down to the same thing it always does. Money. Because of the structure of its government, its treatment of its citizens, and its frequent military aggression, it's almost always under some kind of economic sanction. 
These sanctions choke any legitimate way for them to make money in an effort to get bargaining chips in a battle for human rights and peace in the peninsula. Well, if they can't have a legitimate earning, North Korea saw a way that they could do it dirty. Previously, they relied on counterfeiting money, trafficking drugs and firearms, and other less than clean ways, but sanctions all made these impossible as well, so they began to really look around and turn to the only place they had left, the cyber world. Seeing this room for growth, in the early 2010s, Kim Jong-un ordered the formation of a unit for strategic cyber operations. And you might wonder, why are they doing this for money? Why don't they just operate under the restrictions of the sanctions? Or what is this money going towards? And similar to many other countries, it goes towards this military. According to the UN Security Council, it's estimated that through cyber attacks alone, by 2020, North Korea had netted 2 billion US dollars. How could they go from barely any cyber presence at all to that? Well, let's look at the formation of what would broadly become known as the Lazarus Group, the government-sponsored APT of North Korea. Not a lot is really known about the logistics of the Lazarus Group, but we're going to try to piece together what we can. And we're going to start with the hacks that have been attributed to them. As far as we can tell, they've been active since just before 2010, and seemingly annually they're tied to a newsworthy attack. Those are only the attacks we hear about, though. There are attacks happening every day that don't generate the same amount of buzz that the news reports on, and are happening at almost any given time. We know that they're a group of highly trained, likely military-affiliated, North Korean hackers. So, to get a look at how they might have been trained, let's pop back into last week's episode real quick. Do you remember who I said they specifically indicted for the Sony hack? A man by the name of Park Jin-hyuk. We can look at his background a little bit to figure out how North Korea is getting some of its most skilled hackers trained. According to the FBI, Park was born somewhere between 1981 and 1984, putting him at right around 40 years old as of now. He attended the Kim Chaek University of Technology in Pyongyang. He would leave North Korea for a little while, though, working in China for a North Korean company called Chosun Expo. It suggested that during his time there, he spent more time crafting and honing his skills for exploit development and still managed to perform reconnaissance and cyber espionage activities on behalf of the North Korean government. This person would eventually take the knowledge and skills they'd gain and return back to North Korea to help develop the next wave of cyber attacks that they would unleash upon the world. Now, I don't want to get too off the subject here. We know they have a university program covering programming because that's what Park Jin-hyuk studied. We know they have a working relationship with China, wherein China has a company that valued Korean programmers can go to work, and sometimes come back with more knowledge and tools at their disposal. And we know that Park Jin-hyuk is one of those individuals. Heck, if you go to the FBI website, you can see Park Jin-hyuk's wanted poster and a picture of him. But you know what's weird? North Korea says he doesn't exist. Like, at all. After the United States indicted Park in the involvement for several hacks, the North Korean state official Han Yong-sung came back with this to say, Mr. Park is a non-existent entity, and furthermore, the act of cybercrimes mentioned by the Justice Department has nothing to do with us. The U.S. should seriously ponder over the negative consequences of circulating falsehoods and inciting antagonism against the DPRK, he added. The U.S. is totally mistaken if it seeks to gain anything from us through preposterous falsehoods and high-handedness. 
So I guess we're going to keep your cards close to our chest on this one. You'll remember they did the same thing when we attributed the Sony hack to them. It seems like their strategy for cyber accusations is a bit of a deny-all approach. So if Mr. Park did help build the Lazarus crew to what it currently is, let's take a look at some of their bigger hacks. Because they've been at it for over a decade with a pretty impressive resume. We already covered the Sony hack, but I want to look at their history of progressively more interesting and, frankly, intense hacks. We know they started out a bit more small-time doing what might have been more basic hacks to begin with. Whether it was them getting their feet in the water or just starting to poke out of the shadows, we don't really know, but one of the first major attributed hacks was in 2009. This attack was codenamed Operation Troy. The attack was what was called a Distributed Denial of Service Attack, or DDoS. A DDoS attack aims to flood the victim with so many requests that a site or a system can't handle the load and it'll crash. Think of it like a spam call on your phone. One company gets your number and calls you from the same phone or a small set of phones literally non-stop. It's so bad that you can't even use your phone because every time a call is ignored or stopped, a new one's going to start. That's the concept behind a denial of service attack. So you think to yourself, okay, I'm clever, I'll just block the number and be done with it. And that might work if it's just one company and a small amount of phones. But what if every time it was a different phone number? What if dozens of companies and hundreds of thousands of phones are calling you all at the same time each time? That's a lot harder to defend yourself against because of how distributed the numbers are. You'd need some pretty sophisticated defense mechanisms to prevent this. And that's the concept behind a distributed denial of service attack. They take these requests and flood them from different areas around the world, from different companies, compromised users, compromised computers, and they are all operating on one network, distributed across the entire planet, used in an attack to flood requests. So, Lazarus took a piece of malware called MyDoom, and got it as far reaching as they could. Anyone that was drafted into this network of compromised machines could all be used as one host of attacks in a DDoS attack. So, they now had the numbers and the means at their disposal, but who are they going to go after? Well, they went after South Korea and the United States. The first attack was on July 4th, 2009, with the first wave of targets being the White House, the Pentagon, the New York Stock Exchange, the Washington Post, NASDAQ, and Amazon. It really kind of hits at every facet of what they seemingly hate about America. They were trying to take down the face of the government, free press, Wall Street, and consumerism incarnate. The second wave of Operation Troy went on to attack the South Korean government sites for their National Intelligence Service, their Ministry of Defense, and their Presidential Blue House website. Eventually, the third wave would end this with continued resurgence on the South Korean sites, but this time adding one of its largest banks and several of their news outlets. Back in 2009, there wasn't really much of a concept of a Lazarus group. If you had asked anyone, they probably would have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, if you go back and look at news reports at the time, there were many doubters that North Korea even had a hand in this. PC World had it partially right. They attributed the attack based on the malware MyDoom, but didn't think it was North Korea. And George Smith, at the time a senior fellow of globalsecurity.org, suggested that it couldn't have been North Korea because why would they choose to make an attack that just makes websites unresponsive or slow? There wasn't much to gain from it. 
In the end, this would be one of the first identified cases of one of their tactics, just causing disruption. The next attack I want to talk about happened about a year and a half before the Sony hack we discussed. This one was called Operation Dark Soul. That's S-E-O-U-L, as in the city in South Korea. On March 20th, 2013, computer networks for several South Korean TV broadcasters and multiple banks were disrupted. It happened at right around 2 p.m. local time, when computers of Anonghyup and Shinhan banks were brought down. This impact was enough to stop online banking and ATM transactions for the banks, and over at KBS, MBC, and YTN, three of the bigger TV networks in South Korea, their networks were being crippled as well. Anyone who came in late from lunch those days might have returned to find their computers either off or displaying a graphic of three skulls. The graphic read, Hacked by Whois Team. Whois Whois? Warning. Unfortunately, we deleted your data. We'll be back soon. See you again. Alright, a little spooky for my tastes. We have a picture of that up on the Instagram if you want to see it. Looks remarkably similar to last episode. You might remember that they had a similar styled graphic with equally threatening messages all on the machines at Sony. If you think back to the Sony episode, you might be able to see a little bit of a similarity here. Based on that situation and this threat, you might be able to make the leap and say, wow, this sounds a lot like that wiper malware that hit Sony. And it is. You remember how in that episode I mentioned that it was an identifying piece of a puzzle? Well, this is one of the pieces that helped them identify the Sony hackers. The malware here was a precursor for what was used in the Sony hack sharing a lot of similarities in how it specifically deleted files. So we're starting to see more advanced work coming out of North Korea now. They went from targeting the US and South Korea with a not really super sophisticated DDoS to moving into this iteration with their wiper malware. And the next big one after this would be the Sony hack that we already dove into. But there'd be more to come that I'm sure you've heard about. So let's fast forward to 2017. The tally of victims this morning includes FedEx in the United States, railroads in Germany and Russia, factories and phone companies across Europe, and hospitals in Great Britain, where surgeries were canceled, ambulances turned away. This morning, law enforcement and intelligence authorities around the world, led by Britain's new computer security squad, where we were recently given rare access, are working to track down whoever was responsible. This next attack feels like something out of a zombie survival movie. And honestly, having worked through it myself, it kind of felt that way too. The date is May 12th, 2017. And if you are a Brit with any kind of medical procedure that day, you are probably about to have a bad day. Do you remember how we talked about ransomware? Well, WannaCry was like a small Skynet of ransomware. The earliest tracking of this malware was around 7.44 AM UTC that day, when a client from a Southeast Asian internet provider was found to have been calling out to a web address associated with this malware. What was the malware? The malware was ransomware. Ransomware, as we already know, takes all your files on your system, encrypts them, and holds them hostage, demanding a ransom from you. But for now, what we need to worry about is that within hours, this spread like an infection, hitting thousands on thousands of machines, including very prominently the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. 
Dozens of hospitals and clinics across the UK began reporting problems to their National Cyber Incident Response Center. This kind of ransomware attack was one of the most critical we've ever seen because of this scale. Machines of doctors, machines that operated health equipment, machines for nurses and admins, they were all being impacted and no one was able to do their job. On each machine was, you might have already guessed it, another ransom note. This time though, compared to the Sony hack, it looked a lot more legitimate than anything we'd seen. At the top, it read, oops, your files have been encrypted. Then it continued with frankly well-formatted sections titled, what happened to my computer? Can I recover my files? And how do I pay? It all reads much more like there's a piece of software on your computer that you're trying to use instead of a hacker taking entire control of the system. It even went so far as to include helpful links for contacting them and instructions on how to buy Bitcoin. The breach spread like wildfire, thanks to an exploit that was actually developed here in the United States. About a month prior to this, an anonymous group called the Shadow Brokers had released a small set of hacking tools that contained multiple exploits developed to gain full control over Windows operating systems. This included a vulnerability called Eternal Blue, which used a very common Windows protocol in a way that allowed nearly full control over a host system if it was exploited correctly. So, about a month later, the Lazarus group took the early iteration of the already existing WannaCry ransomware, combined it with what the Shadow Brokers released, and boom, now we've got WannaCry 2.0 and the entire health system is impacted. There's a catastrophe on our hands, but there was a catch. The Eternal Blue exploit only worked on older systems of Windows. So, this WannaCry 2.0 had to use early versions of Windows 7 and even some Windows XP systems to move around. And fortunately for our Lazarus group, there were plenty in the healthcare system. It might sound like a silly question. How many machines could that possibly have been? In 2017, Windows 10 had been out for about two years by that point, with a couple service packs being released, and you'd think people would have had time to update. That's not always the case, though. Like I said, I worked through this, not being impacted by this, but I was in healthcare cybersecurity for about five years. There's a lot you need to consider when trying to upgrade something. For instance, if you take a server or a station down, are you going to stop any programs that are critical for patient care? What if the upgrade breaks one of those tools and you have to go back? A lot of healthcare software can be years and years old because the hardware it works in conjunction with is equally as old and it's just difficult to find the time and money to update it without impacting a litany of hospital resources. So what happens instead? The risk is accepted or ignored and people can keep on going about the day until something knocks the service over and you're forced to update it. This laissez-faire mentality happens far beyond just hospital infrastructure too. but. Unfortunately for them, this was the big hitting target of the day. All in all, upwards of 300,000 devices were hit with a ransomware. In the UK alone, about 20,000 appointments needed to be cancelled for patients, and it's estimated that it cost the NHS about 92 million pounds. It would spread to more than 150 countries, and when you factor in the other institutions that it hit, this ransomware did about 4 billion with a B dollars in damages. These damages come from things like missed services that make a profit, insurance paying out for the ransom for people that chose to do that, 
and equipment that needed to be replaced. There are a lot of other little things that happen when you grind to a halt too, but we're not going to cover those. So 300,000 machines, $4 billion in damages. How much money do you think they got away with? Let's start with a ransom note. We saw that they asked for a payment in the amount of $300 and $600. They ended up, all in all, with about 54 Bitcoin. Bitcoin, as you might know, is incredibly volatile, though, so let's take a look. At the time, if they had withdrawn it immediately, they would have had about $120,000 since Bitcoin was at about $2.2,000 per coin at the time. But that year, Bitcoin would start to take off quite a bit, closing the year at around $16,000 per coin. So if they withdrew in late September, they could have gotten $864,000. If they had held on to it today, well, right now Bitcoin is currently at $61,000 per coin. So two coins would have netted them the entirety of what this attack gained. The whole stack? That would fetch a whopping $3.3 million as of now. Thankfully, that attack was shut down pretty quickly, lasting only a week or two because of a flaw in how the malware was created. We'll be doing a deeper dive into WannaCry someday because there's a much more interesting story even with how I'm telling it today that would take probably an hour to discuss. But basically what happened is that anytime it was installed, WannaCry would check to see if a certain web domain was active. And if it was, then it would act as a kill switch and stop propagating. So on a whim, a security researcher decided to register that domain because no one else had done it yet and suddenly it stopped. It ended up happening a couple more times when they changed the domain but now people knew what to look for to kill it, and eventually, when investigations came back to North Korea, the U.S. did indict one particular person with regard to the hack. We have unsealed criminal charges against a North Korean computer programmer for participating in a conspiracy that conducted sophisticated cyber attacks around the world on behalf of the North Korean government. Members of the conspiracy are responsible for some of the most damaging and most well-known cyber intrusions in history including the cyber attack targeting Sony Pictures, the cyber heist of Bangladesh Bank, and creating the WannaCry ransomware. That was the Justice Department announcing charges Thursday against an alleged North Korean hacker. The criminal complaint specifically charges Park Jin-hyuk with wire fraud and computer fraud. This marks the first time the United States has brought such charges against a Pyongyang operative. That's right. Mr. Non-existent himself, Park Jin-hyuk, has been indicted again. He's been active this whole time, and this was probably his biggest public attack that's been attributed to him. I would put it at higher than the Sony hack. And like I said, this was just the high-level view, I'm talking the 30,000-foot view of the attack. But boy, it did a lot of damage. Lazarus is getting more and more brazen with their attacks, and now we're going to talk about how they got a little bit of money through ATMs. When you or I go to an ATM, I'm not withdrawing more than a couple hundred dollars max. But North Korea, on the other hand, had a different plan. So we know that Lazarus is looking for money. We know they want to use it for their weapons programs and other illicit activities. Let's talk about how we got quite a bit of it in another scam in 2018, the year after the WannaCry attack. On October 2nd, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency published an alert. These alerts are made for the public to be aware of what kind of things to be on the lookout for cyber attacks. 
They're primarily aimed at cyber professionals, but it's free to go look at and available to everyone, so you can dig it up if you'd like. But this one was interesting. It was titled Hidden Cobra Fast Cash Campaign. It read, Working with U.S. government partners, DHS, Treasury, and FBI identified malware and other indicators of compromise used by the North Korean government in an ATM cash-out scheme, referred to by the U.S. government as Fast Cash. In this case, Hidden Cobra is synonymous with the Lazarus Group. It's just what the U.S. government calls it. So I guess the North Korean government was hacking ATMs. Their target were the control switch servers that control ATM transactions. These servers are the gateway to an approval or denial when you're withdrawing money. So to compromise that part of the process, it means that they could potentially bypass it altogether. And bypass it they did. On a successful compromise, the attack deployed a malware, and the malware was called Trojan.FastCache. It was able to sit largely unnoticed because it really didn't do much disruption. All it did was look for a primary account number for the bank that they had created accounts for for the attack. You or I, we all have a primary account number associated with each of our accounts. And when we go to an ATM, part of that process is verifying that the primary account number is valid, sending it up to the switch application, looking at your funds, getting the approval or denial, and then the withdrawal occurs. So after the malware was installed, if a request came in from a legitimate account, they let it go about its way, right up to the payment switch application, and let the process complete as expected. However, if the account was identified as one of their own, the process never made it to the application. Instead, it forged its own approval and sent it right back to the ATM, never touching the payment switch. It allowed the withdrawer to make a request that would always be approved. I have a neat graphic of what Symantec released for us, kind of showing how it bends around the process. That'll be up on the Instagram as well. According to the investigation prompted by this by the U.S. government, a year prior in 2017, there was one instance where cash was withdrawn simultaneously from ATMs in over 30 countries. In this case, for the 2018 attack, it hit 23 separate countries. I wasn't able to find a clear answer as to how much money was stolen, but it's clear based on investigations that the amount is estimated to have been in the millions of dollars. It seems like North Korea was really starting to settle into how they can get money flowing from either ransomware, bank fraud, or just general exploitation tactics, and take it back into their country to use for whatever purposes they needed. And the Lazarus Group is an interesting case. I hope that we've shown here that they've been growing from small-time tactics that are relatively easy to use to more progressive and complex attacks over the last decade. This year, they're still actively attacking the world. What do you think in the last year and a half or so would be a major target? Well, they went after government health organizations and pharmaceutical companies. It's still newer with the attack details, so we don't have all the information, but what we do know is that their goal seems to have been information gathering. Possibly to sell on the dark web for a profit, or possibly to steal for their own uses with a pandemic. They were targeting people who are making vaccines, people who are distributing vaccines, people who are distributing information to help curb the impact and spread of a virus. And it's not likely they're going to stop either. Like I said, it seems like they get more bold with each attempt. But the thing we need to remember is that, again, these are just the ones we hear about. They're out there in the shadows of the internet, collecting information, waiting to use it, maybe going after something that could hit you next time. 
it's a chilling reminder that while they're not explicitly after you, you could be impacted by association. What Michelle is that about? With more and more progressive attacks, I'm frankly a little intimidated and unnerved at what their next big attack could be. But at the same time, I'm excited. Uh, it's always interesting to read about. I just hope next time it doesn't do actual damage. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for joining me on this episode of What Michelle. If you liked this episode or any of the others, please do me a favor and share it with someone you think might enjoy it. Or leave a review and a rating. I'm going to keep making these, and I hope I can keep increasing the amount of people that enjoy it. I'd like to ask anyone listening to also maybe follow the show on at shell underscore pod on Instagram. I'm also excited to say that we've got some interesting plans for potential bonus episodes with a collaboration or two maybe in the works. If it pans out, I think they'll make great little bonus features, but that's it for now. I'll see you in two weeks for the next episode of What the Shell. Thank you.